Well, look over at uh, your Bible to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And we're looking at this in terms of a series that I've titled True Saving Faith. True Saving Faith. And I'd like to look at this morning, John 8, 41 down through 51. Let me read that to you there. It says, you are doing the works your father did, Jesus said. And they said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of the fa- your father, the devil, and, you will, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet, he says, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Well, we've come to this section, as I mentioned, on true saving faith. And we're just kind of following the argument of the writer in the discourse of Jesus. And you remember he labored extensively in chapter 8 to declare that he was the light of the world. And then we came to that amazing verse, look at verse 30, that as he was saying these things, there the text says many believed in him. And so as there's opposition throughout his ministry, and certainly in chapter 8, as we just read, when he got done at least with that discourse after the Feast of Tabernacles, many put their faith in him. And yet he comes right back, look at verse 31, and qualifies it that Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And this is what John has been doing. He was not entrusting himself in John chapter 2 because he knew what was in their hearts. Other people came to faith in him and then in John chapter 7 walked away and in John chapter 6 it says they no longer followed him. And so clearly in the New Testament you have those who have believed who do go away. You have some who are disciples who have stopped following. And so there's this Uh, reflection in the New Testament that there's true and false. There's genuine and there is fake. What I found fascinating is even though they believed in him in verse 30, you'll note in 31, he says, you've got to abide in my word. And yet in the same description, look down at verse 34, he said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So you've got some who believed in him and then those who were enslaved to sin. And then I mentioned a couple weeks ago, some people try to say these are two different groups here. Uh, Some believed and then, no, I think it's the same group. You've got a people that have come to faith 
but it might not be the true faith. Because here in 34, they're a slave of sin. Look down in verse 44. Jesus clearly says there, you are of your father, the devil. So now you got people who practice sin, people who have a heritage, not from their father Abraham, but the devil. If you will, look at verse 45, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Verse 46, which one of you convicts me of sin if I tell you the truth? Why do you not believe me? And then you go all the way down to verse 59, they sought to stone him. And so you have this parallel that some believe, but then at the same time they're slaves of sin, children of the devil, not believing, and they're seeking to take his life. Certainly, GCV, you recognize there is a difference between a profession of faith and true saving faith. You can profess, but that doesn't always clarify. In fact, I was just reading again this week about a man. Some of you have heard of him before. I think I've mentioned him once. Charles Finney. Charles Finney in a previous century was a New York lawyer. And he actually had no formal theological training. He had a very skilled logical mind though and he was converted in the year of 1821 and right at the point of his conversion he became a very popular evangelist and Finney believed that salvation was the result of a human choice and human choice in contrast to the sovereignty of God and Finney believed that man could make that human choice because he was not by nature depraved Oh, Finney would say he had a certain bent towards sin, but it was not his constitution, and so he had the ability within him to choose what is right. So Finney then determined that since man can do what is right, and he was not innately depraved, then you could do what you would do, Finney said, is to work on the will of man. And if you could activate the will of man, Finney taught, if you could motivate the will of man, then he could make the right choice. And you could use almost any legitimate, in Finney's mind, or even illegitimate means, including manipulation and even emotion with the gospel. And he developed what became known, have you heard this? Quote, the anxious bench. And as he began to preach, he began to call people forward. In fact, in the time before that, in the years of the Great Awakening, when you look back and you read the biographies of Whitfield and even Jonathan Edwards, no such thing was ever done. But Finney began to call people forward um, to this anxious bench. In fact, just a little footnote for you, it later became known in Methodism as the altar So if you've heard that, come to the altar that was born out of the revivalism of Charles Finney. And he perfected it, and so they called it the the altar, and you could understand the point. As long as you had the human persuasiveness, you can persuade through legitimate or even illegitimate means, and that's what he did. And as the preacher concluded, he began to call people forward, and people wanted something visible since the invisible work of regeneration could not be seen. And the response, beloved, to his persuasive powers was, well, 
it was phenomenal. Revivalism, the subject was born in some people's mind. And people came in the thousands to the anxious bench. He was so successful that people were reluctant to say anything against him, fearing that they might be saying something against the Holy Spirit. But as you went behind the scenes to check into what was left after Finney did his work, his workers couldn't help but realize the small number of converts who actually remained faithful when they came forward. They didn't. They came forward, but they didn't remain faithful to the Lord. In fact, in a letter to Finney in the year 1834, James Boyle asked this question of him. He said, let us look over the fields where you, others, and I have labored as ministers and what is now their moral state. What was their state within three months after we left them? He says, I have visited many of these fields and groaned in spirit to see the sad, frigid, carnal state into which the churches had fallen and fallen soon after we had first departed among them, end of quote. In other words, as the backdrop fell on Finney, as the curtain was open, they realized that many, and I would be fair to say that most, who came to the anxious bench, came to the altar, did not in fact continue with the Lord. And so many people might in our own day will say, well, Scott, follow-up is the problem. you got thousands coming to forward, but fewer following these would-be disciples up. And I would probably say, no, that's probably not completely accurate. In his book, The Way of the Master by Ray Comfort, he cites that in 1990, there was a crusade in the U.S. 600 decisions for Christ were obtained. And he said there was much rejoicing. However, just 90 days later, follow-up workers couldn't find even one who was continuing in his or her faith. 600 people responded, but when they did the follow-up, they couldn't find one. In Cleveland, another sighting. An outreach saw 400 decisions. The workers involved in the follow-up campaign couldn't find a single one of the 400 who had made a decision. Not one. Charles Hackett, who was the national director for the AOG, the Assembly of God, said this, quote, A soul at the altar does not generate much excitement in some circles, he said, because we realize approximately 95 out of 100 will not become integrated into the church. Close quote. Got 100 coming forward and maybe five will follow forward. In 1991, organizers of a Salt Lake City outreach said that, quote, less than 5% of those who responded to an altar call during the crusade are living the Christian life one year later. Less than 5%. In other words, more than a 95% of those who came forward proved to be false converts. I'm, I'm just reading some facts to you. A pastor in Colorado sent a team to Russia way back when it became somewhat free in 1991, and they saw 20 500 decisions for Christ. The next year, the team found only 30 continuing in their faith. That's a retention rate of 1.2%. In 
churches in Texas, they always do things big, don't they? That's where Blake Boys is from, um, where he came from. They saw the, these churches, 30,000 decisions. Wait, yeah, 30,000. Six months later, the follow-up committee could find only 30 in their faith. 30,000 came forward. 30 continued in their faith. Not far up the road here in Sacramento, a crusade saw more than 2,000 commitments for Christ. And then one church followed up on 52 of those decisions and couldn't find one continuing in the faith. One U.S. denomination reported in 1995 384,000 converts, but they only retained roughly 22,000. They couldn't account for 361,000 conversions. That's a 94% fall away rate. And on it goes. Dennis Greenwell or Grinnell traveled in India in the 80s. He reported that in the 80s, he saw 80,000 decision cards stacked in a hut in one particular city, results of crusades, but he said one would be fortunate to find even 80 Christians in the entire city. Listen, I am not opposed to these kind of outreaches. You may come up and say, Pastor Scott, I was at one of those. You may come up and say, I was at Billy Graham many years ago, and I, I came to Christ. Certainly, God may redeem, and he may save some in that format. Would it be that all of them truly followed Christ? He can use that, and, and you know that, and I know that. But here's the question I'm asking you, though, this morning. What are the distinguishing marks of a true believer? That's what the text is driving at. What are the marks that distinguish a man or a woman as a true believer? And what we're doing is following the argument of John, and I think it runs all the way to the bottom, from John chapter 8, verse 30, all the way down through 59, and we are examining five key foundations that reveal the nature of true saving faith. And I don't, I give this to you, right? I'm not, we're not trying to say, hey, we, we've got the corner on this thing. Everybody in here is true in this building. No, I wouldn't say that at all. In fact, I would say you tap into these distinguishing marks and make sure that they're in your life and increasing. But I also want to equip you. I don't want to come and bash everything. In fact, I had the wonderful privilege to sit down at lunch uh, this week with a particular man and with a particular family who God has used in an amazing way to redeem thousands of people all over the globe. So listen, I'm not coming at this in a harsh way to you, but I am just trying to be faithful to the text. Because what Jesus does, he gives us these key foundations that reveal the nature of true saving faith. We've seen the first three. The true believer, number one, abides in his word. And you saw that in verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed on him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You're genuinely my disciples. You're the real article. And here it was, you've got to abide. 
And we've talked about that. You've got to remain. You've got to persevere. You don't just make a decision. A true believer reveals himself or herself in time. There is an abiding. There is a remaining. There is a continuing. There is a persevering. And you'll note there, there it was to abide in his word. But secondly, a true believer is freed from sin's reigning power. Verse 32, look there, Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And we noted there secondly on that key foundation is that a true believer is freed from sin's reigning power. It doesn't mean you don't sin and we took time to walk through that. It just means that sin no longer owns you. You're no longer sin's slave. You no longer do the things that you just did. In fact, I just had a guy walk up to me in our church at the break to say hi. And he said, look at this pastor in 1 Peter, that he's sanctifying us and that he's obeying us and that it comes from the heart. That's the point here. It doesn't really so so much matter about a decision one makes. It matters, number one, if you continue and remain in his word. And secondly, a true believer is freed from sin's reigning power, that which you once Hated, you now loved, and that which you once loved, you now hated. He transforms your heart. He places the Holy Spirit in you. The Holy Spirit becomes operative in you, and you're then freed from the reigning power of sin. You're no longer enslaved to it. And then thirdly, we noted that a true believer bears fruit. Do you remember what he said in verse 39? They answered him, they said, Abraham's our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, remember this, you would be doing the works of Abraham. And so we noted that a true believer bears fruit. If you're really a child of God, you're going to bear fruit. And beloved, all they did is they thought they were saved because of their pedigree. They thought they were saved because they were Jewish. They thought they were saved because they could describe the lineage of Abraham. And he said, if you're really one of Abraham's, you ought to be doing the works that Abraham did. You ought to be doing the deeds that Abraham did. And do you remember I took you into Genesis 18 last week where Abraham received the messengers. He received the three angels. And one of those angels was given the title Lord. And as you read through Genesis 18, it was a pre-incarnate version of the second person of the Trinity. And he's basically saying, Abraham received me and now these Jews can't receive the Lord Jesus Christ. But you remember, he not only came to faith in Genesis 15, his faith was lived out in 18 to receive those messengers. And then I took you to Genesis chapter 22, that at least 30 years later, he was ready to offer Isaac up on the altar. In other words, his faith was bearing fruits. That's the mark of a true believer. I think we understand that. You're abiding, okay? You're freed from the reigning power of sin. And thirdly, not perfectly, but your life is a life of bearing fruit, both in action outwardly and both in inner attitude where there's love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. So that's where we left off. But look at verse 40. Let's pick up the text. He says, you ought to be doing the works that Abraham did, but now, he said, you seek you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, Jesus said that I heard from God. He said, this is not what Abraham did. And so look at verse 41. He said, and he doesn't identify it here. He said, you are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, 
We are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, they said, even God. And there you have, they're mocking our Lord because of no doubt the accusations that were surrounding his virgin birth. Who exactly is your father, Jesus? You were born out of fornication. Your birth is illegitimate. Ours is legitimate. And you'll note that the Jewish people say there in verse 41, we have one father, even God, and they are correct in that. It's monotheistic, and that would be right. However, God is only the father of those who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here was the problem, beloved. The Jewish people here throughout the New Testament had a false security. They were banking on their family tree, if you will. They were actually saying, Jesus, we do come from Abraham. Let me show you my birth certificate. In fact, where'd you come from? I came from this tribe. And my parents are Jewish in this tribe. In fact, my grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents go back and they're holding on to their family lineage with a false security. They were saying, I am Jewish. In fact, I've had people tell me, I was born a Christian. Beloved, you know that no one is born a Christian. You must be born from above. GCV, one thing is true. No one has ever entered the kingdom of God through biology. Ever. Nobody ever is born into that. You say, well, what's the key? Look down in the scripture at verse 42. This is huge. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, watch this, you, he said, would love me. I love that. If God were your father, you would love me. And this brings me to the fourth key foundation of true saving faith. The true believer not only abides, not only is freed from the reigning power of sin, not only bears fruit, but fourthly, the true believer loves Christ, loves Christ. A true believer loves God's Son. So in other words, Jesus is saying, we got people who believe and then people who are a slave of sin. How do you know? What is the distinguishing mark? Well, here's the mark of a believer. You love the Lord Jesus Christ. Enough for me to say this. You cannot profess a love for God and then reject His only begotten Son, whom He sent to save. Jesus said in John 5.23, He who does not honor the Son does not honor who? God the Father. In other words, he who does not honor the Son doesn't honor the Father whom they profess to know. In fact, he would later warn them in John 15.23, Jesus said out of his own mouth, he who hates me hates my father also. Beloved, this is the truth. If you love God, you love his son. And the distinguishing mark of true saving faith is love for the father's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what that means is that there's not many ways to God. There's not many paths that lead that way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but what? Through me. 
He's the only way. So here the distinguishing mark, oh, you can have religion. Oh, you can have faith. But if you want a true, abiding, living faith, then you're going to love God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, you know this, but let me say it to you. Religion hides behind the name of God. But of course, what, what does that mean? If somebody said, I were to believe in God. Hillary Swank, 1999 Oscar-winning actress best for best actress, was asked, where does Jesus fit into all of your and your husband's success? Here's what she said. It's not like we're Catholic, quote, or Christian, or Episcopal, or practice Judaism, or Buddhism even. We just kind of believe in a higher power, and that doesn't mean a man-god, or someone on a cross. It just means that we all have God-like qualities. We have the power inside of us to do good things. End of quote. I mean, that's not God. That's a God in her own imagination, but that's not the God revealed here. You find true saving faith, not in somebody who says, I believe God. But in someone who says, I believe in God the Father, but I also believe in God the Father's sent Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, I'm just reasoning with you. The Hindus have 330 million gods. Okay? You got to believe in the right one. They have about eight per family. And in addition to that, 450 million Hindus also worship 75 million cows. you got to believe the right thing. That's why we're here today. That's why we need to be in the hearing of the Word of God. To profess love for God, but reject the Son who came forth from God, is not saving faith. By rejecting Jesus... These Jewish leaders undermined the God they claimed was their father. In fact, I think this might be up here on the screen in 1 John chapter 5. See if that comes up, Mason. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That's a clear, exclusive message. And everyone who loves the Father... You love God the Father, you love whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we are the children of God when we love God and we obey His commandments. The next scripture says this in 1 John, I think it's in 5.20. It says, and we know that God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, that's God, and we who are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ, and then he actually says of Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. God has one son, God has one path, God has one way, and there's one way to God the Father, and it is through the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, John the Apostle, same writer of the gospel, said whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And so here, this is a distinguishing mark. In our pluralistic society in which we live in, 
you must believe in the one that God the Father sent, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember, certainly, and we'll get there later in John 14, when Jesus said to Thomas and the disciples, if you had known me, you would know my, what? Father also. From now on, you know him and you've seen him. In other words, to know the Lord Jesus Christ is to know God the Father. Now, you'll note there, look back in that text in John, where he said very clearly that if you would trust me, then you would love me. You remember that when he said that? You would love me. Verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me. Now, you know and I know what is love. Love is linked in obedience in the scripture. It's obedience to Christ. It's obedience to his word. So I have to say that. Okay, you know, in other words, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my what? Commandments. You'll keep my word. So in other words, whatever you want to say about the distinguishing mark of a Christian, you tell me a true Christian abides in his word, remains in it. A true Christian is freed from the shackles and enslavement of the ongoing, continual, persistent presence of sin that owns them. A true believer is constantly bearing fruit in his or her life. And at this point, a true believer has identified that God sent his son. And if you really love me, he says in other places, you'll obey me. John 15, 10 says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So Grace Church of the Valley, Jesus defines then true saving faith, certainly not in terms of biology but in terms of obedience, in terms of your love and your affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. True saving faith leads to obedience. In fact, look back at 42b. Jesus says there, if you love me, he says, if God were your father, you would love me. Why? For I came from God and I am here. He says, I came not on my own accord, but he who sent me. In other words, He's been delegated, if you will. Uh, he was the second person of the Trinity, and he came into this dark world, and he was sent by God the Father. Just glance back in the same chapter, in chapter 8, verse 18. He said this, I am the one who bears witness about myself, which is true because he's God, Jesus. And he said, the Father, 8.18, who sent me, bears witness about me. In fact, look over at John chapter 12. John chapter 12. These are all over. I just highlight a couple. In John 12, 49, there Jesus said, watch this. I have not spoken, 12, 49, on my own authority, but the Father, here it is, who sent me has given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. So listen, he just says, listen. Here's the mark. If you love me, if you love the Father, then you'll love the one who's sent to the Father. The true believer loves Christ and recognizes Christ and recognizes his divine commission from God the Father. It's clear. You say, well, if it's, if it's clear, what did the Jewish people say? Look back in the text in verse 43. Jesus said to them, why do you not understand what I say? Now watch this. It is because you cannot bear, he said, to hear my word. 
He said, you can't hear my speech because you can't hear my word. And the word is the message here. They were unable to hear. And and the, the Greek word here is the sense to obey. They couldn't hear his word, his message. They were unable to grasp his words. And what Jesus is saying, because you can't, you're you're not my children. And then I think he drops the biggest bomb, one of them, in all of the New Testament. And there's just no way around this. You say, what was the bomb? Look at verse 44. He tells these people who are listening to him, these Jewish leaders, you are of your father, what? The devil. Our Lord says to them, you may be physically the children of Abraham, but morally you are children of the devil. You say, well, I mean, that cuts against our real easy speak today, doesn't it? That really cuts against our political correctness. Jesus said to these people who were listening to him, you are of your father, the devil. And listen, I don't think he said it. I think he was firm in what he said, but I think he's like, why aren't you listening? I'm telling you. I'm the one who Abraham longed to see down in the chapter. And you're not obeying and you're not hearing and you're rejecting my message and you're showing you're the father of the devil. You say, well, why would he say that to them? Look at the scripture in verse 44. He said, and your will... He said, is to do the desires, he says, or your father's desires. Present tense. He tells these leaders, you're constantly desiring what the devil desires. You carry out the wishes of the devil. I think I could say to you, like father, like what? Son. And they bore resemblance to the devil himself. And there's two evil desires that describe the devil. Look at him in verse 44. Here's what they were. He was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth and because there is no truth in him and when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. Very clearly, Jesus says he was a murderer and he was a liar from the beginning and in a very, must could not hear a pin drop there. He said he's a murderer and he's a liar. And right now, I think through the lines, he said, your actions on my life make you a murderer and make you a liar, just like your father, the devil. He said the devil is a murderer. The devil is a liar. Now, you say, well, what is he referring to? Well, certainly in Genesis 2, 17, you remember that? In their garden, no sin has broken through the garden, and there was a tree, remember that? Of the knowledge of good and evil that God said to Adam and Eve, you shall not eat, you know it, for the day you eat of it, you shall surely, what? Die. That's truth from heaven. You look at, here's a whole garden for you. Enjoy all of it, except just right in the middle of the garden, there's one tree, and it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and I don't want you to eat it. You shall not eat it. For the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the devil just wiles, kind of just sneaks his way in in chapter 3, 4 and says, you surely will not, what? Die. 
and he lied. And as a consequence of his lie and as a consequence of the sin, the devil plunged the human race into sin and brought about the physical, spiritual, and eternal death of all who failed to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Romans 5.12 says. In fact, Jesus said he doesn't stand in the truth, and here's why. He said there's no truth in him. He's a murderer, and he's a liar. And this is the testimony of Scripture, and it goes beyond the bound of this text. Remember in 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul said, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. Oh, we know the devil is crafty. He's, he deceived her. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says that the devil has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. He's so deceptive. In fact, it says in 2 Corinthians 11.14 that he disguises himself as an angel of what? Light. An angel of light. In fact, in Revelation 20, he's called the deceiver of the nations at the end of the world. And there's so much more to say but look what Jesus says though in verse 45 he said in 45 but because I tell you the truth you do not believe me I've told you the truth about God I told you the truth about sin I've told you the truth about salvation I've told you the truth about heaven I've told you the truth about hell I've told you the truth about life I've told you the truth about death and your prideful heart Jesus said does not believe me And so look what he said to him in verse 46. He said, which one of you convicts me of sin? Oh, certainly they said he was a blasphemer, but they never convicted him of any sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says of the Lord Jesus Christ, he knew no sin. We know that the writer of Hebrews said in 4.15, he's tempted in all things and yet without sin. 1 Peter 2.22 says that he committed no sin. So Jesus says, if I tell you the truth, why don't you believe me? In other words, if I speak the truth, if I've come from God, if there's no sin found in me and I proclaim the truth, why do you not believe me? And here's the reason. They don't love him. They don't love him. Listen, a true believer who knows God the Father, loves the Son, whom God the Father has sent. Beloved, you know this. This is a very exclusive message. I'm sure one day this will get me jailed. Pray that we can be faithful to that. But here's the marks, the distinguishing marks. Say, how do you tell with all the thousands who come at the anxious bench, who come at the altar, and then they just go away and I've shared that. It's happened with me. I've led people to Christ. You say, well, Scott, you you weren't examining them close enough. No. I stood up all night with this one guy I shared with you before, pouring over truth after truth of the gospel, thinking that he got it. To have us as the sun was rising, him drop to his knees, and him to pray the sinner's prayer only to have him walk away it's it's happened to me you say well Scott then how do you know well the the thing is you don't want to look back on his decision you just want to say does he abide is he remaining is he persevering in the word is he freed from sin's power and my answer would be no he went on to live in flagrant open sexual immoral relationships 
You say, but Scott, you prayed with him. Yeah, I did. But Jesus is saying, listen, there's a lot of people who believed. But here's how you know. Do you abide? Are you freed from sin's power? Do you continue to bear fruit like Abraham did? And how about this? Do you just love the Lord Jesus Christ? When Shay reads from Ephesians 4, does it just resonate with your heart? Yeah, praise God what he did. Praise God that he pulled me out. Help me put on this and put off this. And if that is so, then those are evidences of the fruit of God in your life because you want to love Jesus and you want to obey Jesus. But then he gives another one. Look at verse 47. He said, whoever is of God hears the words of God. And then he said, the reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Here's the fifth key foundation of true saving faith is the true believer hears the words of God. The true believer hears the message. The true believer obeys the message. Look what he said in verse 47. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. In other words, it's a failure to obey the scripture. You don't get heaven by birthright. You don't get heaven by biology. It frankly doesn't matter what your last name is. It doesn't matter that my kids bear my last name. How you're going to know is you continue to hear the words of God and obey the words of God. You think, well, gosh, that would have softened their hearts. No, look at verse 48. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? (laughs) I mean, the argument, if you will, turns to abuse. They couldn't secure their argument, so now they're going to start reaching for different darts. They're just going to just start hurling them at Jesus, and they basically say, your birth is illegitimate. We know that the Jews from John 4 hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Jews, and there could have been no greater blight that you can tell Jesus Christ at this point that his birth was illegitimate, that he's from the line and the lineage of the Samaritans. He basically saying what they're saying is you're a traitor to our nation. You may be called a child of God through your birth of Joseph, if they counted that, but you're an enemy to us. You're a traitor to us. In fact, not only are you have an illegitimate birth, but they said there, can you see it in verse, in verse 48, you have a demon. Say, so what did Jesus say? Look at verse 49, I think just super calmly. I do not have a demon. I just, that's what he said. I do not have a demon, but I honor my father. And he said, you dishonor me. He just basically saying you have a demon and in other places in the gospel of John 8, 52, 7, 20, 10, 20, to say that he had a demon was like to say that you're insane. He says, I'm not insane. I don't have a demon. And here's why. He says, I honor my father. I honor my father. I obey my father. Look back at John 8, 29. Do you remember that there? And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. Jesus said in 8, 29, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Listen, I don't have a demon. I don't, he's basically saying I don't even have sin. Well, you, you can accuse me? I don't have a demon. And here's why. Because I'm always pleasing my father. Look at John chapter 8 in verse 38. You remember that there? He said, I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. He says, I'm only speaking what I've heard from God the Father. 
He said in John 6, 38, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He said in John 5, 19, the son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. He said, I don't have a demon. He says here, I only do what pleases him. And then look back at the text here when he says there, he says, yet, he says at the end of 49, you He said, dishonor me. Just let me clarify here. You dishonor me. A failure to respond to Christ and his message. Couldn't be clearer. It's to dishonor the father who sent him. Beloved, just in a concise way to you, if you reject the messenger, you reject the sender as well. If you reject the messenger... You reject the sender as well. If you reject Jesus and his message, then you're rejecting God the Father who sent him. In fact, look what he said to him in verse 50. Yet I do not seek my own glory implied in other places, and you do. He said there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. And who is that? That is God. So, beloved, listen. A true believer hears the message. A true believer obeys the message. And then what's, what's so incredible to me is that you're like, is this out of place? Verse 51, and it's not. Jesus said, truly, truly. Or we say, amen and amen. I mean, if Jesus were here in the little theater at the, here with us, and he were to look at you in a conversation out on the patio and say, truly, truly. I mean, you would, you would take a double take. You'd listen carefully. He says, look at it in 51. I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see what? Death. See, so then, Scott, how do you know? Well, here it is. You keep his word. You keep his commandments. You treasure his commandments. You love his commandments. The ideal of keeping his word is you believe it. You you cling to it. You obey it. You live by it. That's a lot different than the anxious bench. That's a lot different than the altar. That's a lot different than emotionalism. No, look at it again in 51. You see it again. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And again, we're back to John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In fact, look over there in John 14. And we're almost done. John 14, look at it there. He says, as you can see it in verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And again, beloved, you say, Pastor, I struggle. I struggle with sin. Listen, I struggle with sin every day. I confess my sin. But with the life of a believer, you're ever moving towards Christ's likeness and you're cutting away sin and mortifying sin and killing sin. And if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. Look at 1421. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And so you have these scriptures over and over again. Look at verse 23. He said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. 
Look at verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my, what? Words. So listen, here's a wonderful, wonderful gospel promise. You say, what's the gospel promise? Look back in John 8. It's amazing. In verse 51. I want you to see it. You can underline it. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see, what? Death. Literally. Here's what it means in the Greek. They will never, ever see death. In other words, it's like an an emphasis there. It's emphatic, we call it. You will never, ever see death. You will never, ever experience death. This is a promise to all those who keep his word. Listen, this is the wonderful truth, is it not? Jesus said to that woman, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal, what? Life. You get eternal life. Death has no power over us. In fact, glance back at John chapter 5. That wonderful statement there in that gospel promise. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he's passed from death to life. There it is. What are the distinguishing marks of a believer? How can I know if I possess true saving faith? Ask yourself, do I abide in his word? I mean, you're here. (laughs) You're here. I mean, do you ever feel like the disciples, where else would I go? Where, Where else would I do, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. A true believer is freed from sin's reigning power. doesn't mean that they don't sin. But it means as an ongoing practice, you want to love the Lord. A true believer bears fruit both in attitude and action. A true believer loves Christ because God sent Christ. And so you love Christ because he came from God the Father. And a true believer, fifth and finally, hears the words of God. He keeps and desires to continue to walk in obedience. Listen, the follow-up from the earlier quotations didn't reveal much fruit. But that's a little bit of the biblical fruit of what the Lord Jesus is looking for. Would you bow your head?